Hey, welcome back. So <laughs> today is, of course, the jobs data day, Thursday. And, and you know, as is usually the case, the market is obviously fixated on it. Um, now, unsurprisingly, today was the fourth week in a row of just really poor jobs numbers. I'm not talking about a slight growth that was under expectations or a slight loss. No, I mean, we're living in the era of COVID-19. Over 5 million jobs, new jobless claims, over 5 million. Over the last uh, four weeks, so roughly a month now, there has been over 22 million new jobless claims, which is pretty darn close, actually, to the, um, the, the whole gap that was closed since the Great Recession and, and the massive amount of new jobless claims during that period of time. And we're only four weeks in. I mean, I think there's this notion, I went back, you know, going back to my, to my uh, podcast from probably two, two or three days ago, talking about how some people are acting as though the economy is already opening up and everything's all, you know, rosy projections and whatnot. That's simply not the case. That as a whole, most states are maybe slowly looking to that, um, but but they're only in the preliminary planning stages, and and I don't know of any state in the United States that has actually tried to open up yet, and globally, uh, it hasn't been the case for most countries either. It's mostly in the planning stages. The, the few exceptions would be um, China, you know, South Korea, uh, and and some of those other you know Asian, uh, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, which fared fairly well, uh, some of those smaller countries. And then South Korea obviously got their outbreak mostly under control. Otherwise, and by the way, China's, you know, we, we shouldn't trust their data, period, but but they're, you know, already moving back to lockdown mode. Not completely, but they are, I think, cognizant of a second wave of this infection. They say it's all being imported by, by travelers. Um, I tend to think that, no, it's probably still in their borders. That's probably somewhat true. There's so much of it abroad, but yeah, it's probably still in their borders. And it has been since you know, since February. It never really stops spreading. Um, but but anyways, here in the United States, I mean, there hasn't been a state. There's only preliminary plans. There's dates that are set in which some states are going to open up again. Obviously, some never entirely closed, but but many of the large ones did. The the ones with the larger economies, for the most part, again broadly speaking. And, and they don't have any plan, or sorry, they haven't actually tried opening things up again. I mean, it's still, we're, we're still in this point where there's likely to be many more jobs that are lost before you start to see some of those jobs um, coming back on the payroll. Once you start to see those jobs um, come back into the economy, and again, I'm not going to make this whole podcast a, a rehash of my, my previous podcast, but it's, it's likely that, that most of those jobs won't come back. Maybe not most but a good chunk of them will not come back because uh, companies will have gone belly up. They'll be trimming fat. Uh, they'll, they'll not be hiring back some some portion of, of their individuals. Plus, there's going to be some businesses that are going to have to wait a long time before they can hire people back, period. I'm thinking cruise ship industries, hospitality industry, uh, uh, airlines, uh, as, as well as... Um, you know, businesses that are just, you know, I'm thinking like stadiums, right? Uh, with with low-income workers that, that work at ball games and, and uh, um, 
you know, NASCAR races and, and concerts and all that. That's going to be a long time before those things start up again, right? Uh, but still, more job losses to come yet. And, and how has the market reacted to it? It's, it's absolutely cratering. It's down over 1,500 points as I speak, the Dow Jones. Well, no, actually not. It's, it's down a little over 164 points as I speak right now, less than one percentage point. And that's the norm in, in COVID-19 world. It's, it's too early to say that it, the, the paradigm hasn't shifted. But certainly prior to all of this starting, uh, what was my mantra about the stock market? It's nothing more than a product of credit growth and liquidity. And as of right now, that's sort of still the case. There was a while there where the market absolutely panicked, and, and rightfully so, because of the economic shock, the largest economic shock in, in the last 100 years. However, they've gone back to the old, um, the old paradigm of, of the only thing that matters is credit growth and liquidity. And if the government can help to socialize that credit increase, that credit growth, by taking on the debt themselves, if the Fed can, can um, help them out by, by monetizing that debt. And of course, if the Fed and other central banks can, can inject liquidity into the system, along with the help of banks, then great. They're, they're back to where they were, and, and hey, the stock market can continue to rise. As I speak, the Dow Jones is well off of its bottoms, obviously, from, you know, what, a month ago, uh, when it was, uh, I think, below 19,000 in that range. As I speak now, it's over 23,000, over 23, right? So, so by the way, you know, I did some quick numbers. I actually tweeted these out as well. The, the Fed has, in the last month, roughly, from... March 11th, this is going off of their data uh, from the St. Louis Fed, their, their FRED database. Um, since March 11th through April 9th, so they, so they still have to update it today, and obviously you'll see a change, but they have increased their balance sheet by $1.772 trillion in that time span. That's that's significantly less than their total increase in their balance sheet. I just want to use roughly a one-month span. Um, it increased quite a bit in the weeks prior to that and in the several months prior to that from not QE, which was QE, albeit at a slower pace than, than what we're seeing right now, but over $1.7 trillion. To put that in context, we've lost 22.025 million jobs. You know, that's how many jobless claims we've had in a month span. Uh, four weeks, roughly, from March 11th to April 9th, roughly the time same time span, the Fed printed 1.772 trillion dollars. That's over eighty thousand dollars for every jobless claim. I mean, that's a very good salary for every single person that is out of work. For for increased context, uh, the Fed has printed. Uh, nearly, so $5,399 for every man, woman, and child, uh, roughly 328.2 million individuals in that same time span. Nearly $5,400. And, and when you put in context of that versus the, well, the stimulus check that many of us have you know, received or will receive... It seems kind of small, does it not? The Fed, you know, you almost ask yourself, if the Fed's going to print that money, and if the government is going to take on that debt regardless, would we be better off if they just, you know, gave it all to individuals at that rate, 5400 a pop, 
right? Or you could make it, you know, 8,000 for adults and, and a few thousand for, for a, a dependent, a kid. Then, now, obviously, that's not going to maybe target things as, as nicely as the government would like to, especially with their small business loan program, etc. Uh, but it would be a start. Um, obviously, I'm not in favor of any of that, period, uh, in the sense that it's it's just running up the debt more. And it's um, it's going to create inflation, especially when the Fed is monetizing a good chunk of that. But I do want to put that in context that, you know, the Fed has printed nearly $5,400 for every man, woman, and child. And, of course, that may not be counting, you know, immigrants, illegal aliens, etc. But you get the point of what I'm saying here. Uh, and, and when it's all said and done, and when the Fed has basically completely monetized the deficit and when and not if they will i'm sure but when they have monetized pretty much that complete deficit uh of the stimulus program itself the stimulus programs that the the federal government has put in place that's going to give good context to how much of it actually how much of that money creation actually went to people versus small businesses and of course large businesses we're seeing bailouts um very large bailouts for for airlines and and for for many other corporations along with small businesses and then aid I'm sure we'll see for states and cities and counties and whatnot um, but but we're still a long ways from the finish line in terms of bailouts I know an article yesterday on zero hedge showing the the amount that banks in in their recent you know quarter one filings are setting aside to counteract the ultimate you know, default that they're going to see on a lot of, of people that owe debt to them, owe money to them, um, for, you know, for mortgages, for, for car loans, for, for personal loans, etc. Uh, uh, the amount that, that uh, people will end up not paying. The, the charge-off rate, I guess, would be, at least they use that for, for credit cards. I don't know if they use it for other loans, but, but the amount that's going to be defaulted on. And, you know, the, the main idea of this article was that they're setting aside a lot, and and certainly the amount that they're setting aside is making it look like they're gonna you know have a tough quarter two, tough quarter three based on how many people will uh, not be paying on their loans and and probably will default. However, they're probably not setting aside enough, and you know the article is showing that hey you know it's all said and done those banks are probably gonna need to bail out in the hundreds of billions of dollars. I think the number they put out there was like a hundred billion, or you know. But but we know that when when those bailouts happen, a hundred billion dollars tossed at you know the big banks, the GSIBs, the globally systemically important banks, you know, it's going to be a lot more than a hundred billion. I would be surprised to see anything shy of you know I don't know eight hundred billion, right? Probably more than that. Eight hundred billion sounds very. 2009-ish, not, not 2020, uh, not, not that same scale. So, so probably a trillion, trillion and a half uh, banks are going to say we, we screwed up big time. And it was, nobody could have seen it coming. You know, we were well capitalized. We thought we were capitalized well enough. And, and hey, guess what? We weren't. Um, I guess all those people that said that U.S. banks aren't, you know, any less risky than they were in 2008, 2009. I guess they were right. Uh, money, you know, money, please. Um, <laughs> uh, so that's sort of where we're headed. I mean, greater and greater deficits, greater and greater amount of bailouts. Where does this all end? Where does this all end? You know, over on 
There's a website, an individual by the name of Ben Hunt. Maybe for some of you that rings a bell, especially as of late. Ben Hunt, uh, from from a you know a, a website, I guess you could call it. Um, he does you know investing. He does a lot of stuff. Um, Epsilon theory is the name of it. Has has been a guy that since you know er, very early on, uh, really called what was going to happen in the markets has commentated pretty extensively on what's been going on in all this COVID-19 business. And he put on an article um, not so long ago, and I'm going to link it in the description because, you know, if you have the amount of time to listen to my podcast here today, I understand you may just be listening to my podcast because you have nothing better to do with your life, which I'm sorry <laughs> if that's the case, but you might be doing it when you're, when you're working out, when you're driving, doing something else, right? You don't, have the time to spare for your eyes to read an article. I get it. This is a long article, actually written by Rusty uh, Gwynn, G-U-I-N-N, posted on April 14th, so fairly recent. Um, And it's a lengthy one, but I'm going to link it nonetheless. And and what it is, is basically showing, he goes piece by piece through who we have to blame, I think, for maybe not the crisis we're in, but such a mismanagement of a crisis. Such a mismanagement of everything related to this COVID-19 business and and why so many different parties have been just totally intellectually dishonest, have flip-flopped on issues without ever, you know, barely even acknowledging that, hey, they were wrong for weeks or months at a time. Um, and, and in many cases, those actions have real consequences, have real consequences in terms of how this disease spread in our borders for so long. And, and he goes through, I mean, he starts with the World Health Organization. And he, he talks about their um, failure to act early on likely because of political considerations, their political ties to China, right? Good on Donald Trump. I mean, look, I, you're going to hear maybe a fair bit of negative stuff about Donald Trump from me from time to time. I try and take it piece by piece here. Um, but good on Donald Trump for defunding the WHO, the World Health Organization. Because, hey, guess what? They are a very political organization. They showed themselves to be that in the past few months. And they dropped the ball on this one. They did not act in the best interests of the citizens of the world. They acted in the best economic interests and the best political interests of the Chinese Communist Party. And he goes on talking about the FDA and how they put up roadblock after roadblock early on for things like uh, new tests, new test procedures and whatnot for COVID-19, slowing down the process, making it difficult for new you know, private and public labs um, that previously were not running tests or want to run new tests or whatever, making it difficult for them to do so in a time in which they need to expedite things, right? He basically says, hey, the FDA is there to make sure that there is little to no risk with things. And and that's great in, in peacetime and normal times, not a good thing when you have a disease spreading and you need, to, you need firms to act quickly. The CDC, how, you know, their whole mask suggestion saying, hey, don't wear masks, they're not a big deal, 
they don't help or anything like that. Now, complete reversal on that, as well as their botched rollout of testing, um, the fact that they just did not emphasize testing enough early on or ramping up testing to where they think they would need to have it. You know, he talks about universities and how they've had to, you know, um, despite the fact that many of these, especially the large ones like Harvard, huge endowments, billions of dollars that they have, you know, laid off most of their low-income workers, despite the fact that they're always preaching um, this this need for, for, I guess, benevolence towards the low-income, the disadvantaged, right? Despite the fact that they still have billions in their endowments, they're, you know, laying out the most vulnerable of the individuals in their, um, in their midst. And there's more that he goes on about that. He talks about the media. He talks about how the media, both on the left and the right, have totally flip-flopped that early on, you know, the left-wing media was just hammering, you know, Trump, why, you know, this ban on China, this is dangerous, this is, you know, maybe racist, this is whatever. Um, article after article after article about how we don't need to fear the coronavirus. What we need to fear probably is, you know, the flu or whatever. Don't worry about traveling. Don't worry about shaking people's hands. Don't worry about, you know, going to the Chinese New Year celebrations in New York City. It's not a big deal. You'll be fine. The coronavirus is not the risk that people make it out to be. And hey, guess what? On the right side, obviously they were wrong and they've completely had to change their tune. On the right-wing media, Fox News, Tucker Carlson was one in particular who hasn't necessarily flipped as much, but much of the right-wing media, he points out, actually early on, did a very good job of sounding the alarm. In fact, he points out that maybe one of the best (laughs) news outlets early on for this was Breitbart. They nailed it early on, the risk that this may pose. But they've entirely flip-flopped. Most of these uh, individuals and and organizations now flip-flopped to saying this is not a big deal. We, we need to open up the economy, etc. right? Total flip-flop from alarmism in a good context, actually, um, to uh, uh, minimizing. You know, he talks about boards, uh, corporate boards, and how they've um, just taken advantage of this to, to further preserve or enrich themselves. Uh, you know, American Airlines is one example. Plenty of petroleum uh, or, or shale oil companies or just oil companies, energy companies that are guilty of the same. Talks about Wall Street, talks about Congress, talks about Donald Trump and how they have all have just not acted in the best interests in many ways of the broader population. Highly recommend you read it. A lot of people to get frustrated at. It's infuriating reading this article. Uh, it was for me. And and there's another one, which I haven't gotten, read, read it, gotten to reading yet. Um, this one written by Ben Hunt. And, and he sort of has a, a term you know, when, when he sees this, uh, these acts, when he sees this corruption, this lack of justice, this lack of honesty. Um, in the case of, of maybe what the, the federal government, what state governments are doing right now, and, and how many of these restrictions on, on our daily lives may continue for months and months. And many, may, maybe some of this may never leave us, you know, these restrictions on our liberty, this potentially loss of liberty. Um, you know, his answer to it is um, burn it the F down. 
and, and I can't say I disagree in the sense that our institutions have failed us. And, and it'd be great if we could start new, especially if we could carry out some sort of I don't know, revolution without it being a, a bloody revolution, without it being a revolution for socialism. However, here's the problem. You and I can agree on that. I think I tend to think my viewers and listeners, uh, you guys tend to be reasonable, tend to be liberty loving folks tend to be more constitutional-minded, libertarian-minded, etc. That's great. Um, however, that's obviously not the case for the vast majority of Americans. Sorry, but it's not. Right? I think both parties have shown themselves over the last number of years that they're more than happy to, to sacrifice their ideals, their principles, whether that is justice or liberty or small government, or whatever, in the name of political gain, in the name of political gamesmanship, in the name of whatever, right? It happens that political, you know, politicians doing it, the voters do it as well. Let's change our views on this or that uh, because it suits us politically right now and it makes the other party look bad or the other whoever look bad. As a whole, America is not a liberty-loving country, nor is it truly a justice-loving country. It's, it's, we've become a lover of selves, um, a lover of expedient solutions, a lover of what works now, a lover of what we feel versus principles, what's actually just, what's actually in the best interest of, of increasing the justice, the liberty of, you know, the broader population, uh, and I could go on more and more if I had time to, you know, just talk about what we've really become as a, as a country and what the vast majority of Americans, I think, actually believe. Um, not a whole lot of principles to speak of. Sorry, but but that's the case. And so this notion of burn it the f down sounds great on paper, but but that can mean a lot of different things. You know, I've said so many times here on on this podcast in the past that, you know, the American Revolution, for all that you can say negatively about the Founding Fathers, uh, particularly in their kind of dual, I guess, approach to rights of individuals in the sense that, well, slavery is still a thing here in the United States in the late 1700s. Um, many of the Founding Fathers owned slaves. And yet they talked about these rights for, you know, uh, if we can set that aside, um, the American Revolution was unique in that we overthrew a, a large government, you know, the British Empire, largest empire on earth at the time, uh, to, to my knowledge, um, I believe, and, and uh, certainly a, a government that overreached its bounds, a very large government. Um, we were subjects prior to that. We were treated as subjects, at least. And, and we shifted from that to, to citizens of a country where we're um, individuals with individual rights, for the most part. We've come a long ways, I think, in, in extending those rights to more people since then in a very positive way. But early on, still, we, we went from huge government to smaller government, from really a lack of justice, a lack of liberty, to more liberty, more justice, smaller government, more individual rights. 
And, and because of that, I think everybody here in the United States has this rosy picture of revolutions that if we carried out another revolution here in 2020 or 2021, bloodless or bloody, that somehow, some way, we would, you know, really, who was it that said, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but from time to time, the, you know, the tree of liberty has to be watered with the blood of tyrants in the sense that, you know, revolutions have to happen from that time and maybe bloody, right? We have this notion that if we did it again, we'd get it right again. However, I think, you know, this idea of American exceptionalism, I don't know, it, we have this idea of American exceptionalism. That's probably not new to a lot of you. Um, I think we, we carry that same idea for revolutions because our revolution, I think, was in many ways exceptional, exceptionally positive when it was all said and done. We have this notion that somehow we can achieve that again, despite the fact that our value system here in the United States today is night and day compared to what it was in 1776. Night and day. And rather, I, I tend to think that if we carried out another revolution today, bloody or bloodless, it would look far too much like a lot of the other revolutions, which oftentimes are called, when it's all said and done, you know, revolts, uh, coups, coup d'etats, whatever, um, that it would look like uh, what's happened in countless countries around the world in which one tyrant... Our King George, King George doesn't have to be Trump. It can be the broader government if, if you don't want to assign that to Trump, whatever. Um, if you want to replace King George with a George Washington, too often you end up with a King George that's replaced by you know King George II. I don't know what King George was, if he was a second or third, whatever, whatever. But you get what I'm saying here. That you end with one tyrant and you end up with another. Maybe of a different flavor, right? Maybe you go from the czar to a Lenin, right? Maybe you go from, um, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, yada, 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 some years pass, and then Adolf Hitler. Uh, maybe you go from, you know, you can name it time and time again. We've, we've switched. Maybe you go from a, you know, Barack Obama to a, a Donald Trump. Now, obviously, we didn't care at a revolt, and, and I'm not comparing the two to Lenin and Hitler or anything like that. I'm simply saying that, um, Nothing changes, broadly speaking. Maybe you go from one nationalist or populist individual, you throw a revolt, and hey, guess what? You, you end up with somebody that is the epitome of what Bernie bros want uh, or what you know socialists or communists want, right? Oh, that doesn't work. Let's throw another revolution. Well, guess what? We get um, one of the more nationalistic or the one of the more you know, populist presence that, that we've ever had, right? And, and, and we have some problems with that. And so maybe we should try out, you know, fascism. Let's, let's see if government can fix all of our problems. We just have to find out the right form of government. And, and so often it's the case that we need to maybe fix our own problems. And, and, and I mean, here's the thing. I mean, this whole burn it the F down, you know, all these institutions and these individuals that are in some way, shape or form responsible, some blame can be laid on them. For everything leading up to this crisis, the crisis itself, the bubble in the economy, in the financial system that's in the process of popping, the Fed, all of that. Um, to some extent, I think we as an as, as a population 
have have earned that. Have we deserve like it or love it or or hate it. We deserve the president we have. We deserve the Congress we have. We deserve the FDA, the CDC, to some extent maybe the WHO, but but we deserve um, the banks, the Fed, the the corporate boards, the um, the stock market, the real estate, the economy. We have we do, to some extent deserve that. That's what we've earned for ourselves. And you say, well, that, that's not very positive. I would agree. It's not very positive what we end up with. And yet, what would you expect? Going back to what I said, I don't think the U.S., our value system is anywhere close to what it was in 1776. So why would you expect us to end up with small government leaders that actually, surprise, surprise, have the ability to constrain their own power, leaders with maybe principles, leaders that seek to preserve rights, protect rights, which ultimately should be maybe one of the primary, if not only, goals of the federal government to protect the rights of its citizens. Why is it any surprise that we don't end up with that form of government and instead end up with this corporatocracy, this oligarchy that is closely tied to corporations, but itself is also a massive monster, closely tied also to the Federal Reserve? Why is it that we end up with a government that doesn't actually seek to protect rights, but actually treats rights as something that can be delegated out and taken away at a moment's notice. Um, it's because that's maybe to some extent our value system. So here's my conclusion. It, for me, well, for me and my family, for me and my community, me and my church, um, I think a lot of this has to come down to the individual level. I think individualism is some of the answer here for the relatively small proportion of people that hold a value system similar to, you know, those during the the uh, Revolutionary War. Well, let's take advantage of that and let's, uh, let's change our lives individually, right? We can make somewhat of a difference there. However, for me personally, I, let's say I make a whole boatload of money off this crisis. I'm not probably going to. It's not like I'm an active trader or I have a whole lot of capital to deploy. Um, let's say I did. Great. Okay. Th- that's fine and all. And it'd be great if I could use that to then maybe rebuild the world somehow how I want to. But it, but for me, that's too self-centered. That's too – and I'm not saying that I'm like the most humble, most selfless person ever. I'm going to give it all to charity. No. I think it's even too selfish to say that, hey, I can make a boatload of money, give it to charity, and change the world. No, I mean, that's that's not realistic. Bear with me here. I think, you know, the solution to our problems, and it sounds cheesy, is, is God. And I think my long-term listeners shouldn't be surprised by me saying that. And many of them may be tuning out right now, or many of them may be like, yeah, you're right. But I do think that that's the case. I, I don't think that United States, I'm not under the illusion that the United States necessarily has ever been a country entirely fixated on God, you know, even in the early 1800s or something like that. No, maybe more so than today, maybe not. I don't know. It's hard to say without living back then and seeing what people's lives actually looked like and whatnot. But what I can say now is that what's going on right now you know, when this is all said and done, there's going to be a ton of people to blame and there's going to be a ton of people that benefit. You know, I saw a tweet recently from this Lawrence 
I think it's from a Lawrence Lepard talking about how, you know, those that own precious metals are going to be in for a windfall that I think he's, you know, said some long lines of Eric Sprott, one of the wealthiest men in the world, you know, a number of years from now when it's all said and done. Well, I mean, guess who else is probably still going to be some of the wealthiest people in the world? Uh, central bankers, bankers, large corporate executives, um, the communist Chinese party, and especially with their massive gold holdings, you know, the IMF. I mean, how much is actually going to change when this is all said and done? Not a whole lot in terms of who is at the top, you know, and, and does that serve justice? Does that increase liberty? Generally speaking, no. Right. And so with that in con, you know, with that context, you know, what is actually going to change when this is all said and done? What can we do to change things? And again, I think it goes back to this notion of, of, of God. I mean, we've, we're a people in the United States, whatever, um, that have moved away from God. But, but I think we have to start thinking without the categories or without the borders, literal and figurative, that we currently use. I'll put it this way. There's a lot of people to blame that probably won't see the justice they deserve in this lifetime for how they've maybe contributed to this COVID-19 and whatever. And, and to some extent, I think that same blame, that same, you know, there's a lack of justice for all of us. We, we, I think we've, you know, to, to quote the Bible, all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And, and fortunately, through his saving grace, I mean, that's not the end of the story, right? Otherwise, we're, we're, all, we're all going to hell. Um, but that's not the case. However, there's a lot of people to blame. And there's going to be a lot of people who, through a lack of justice in this world, because we live in a world with a lack of justice for the time being, are going to profit, going to benefit through ill gain when they shouldn't. The people that are at the top, that have gotten to the top through a lack of justice, they're going to stay there in many cases. However, let's forget about America as an institution, about our government, about the world governments, about the world markets and corporations and groups of people, etc., there's justice coming one day, like it or not, for you, for me, for everyone. Um, and, and it's only by, you know, the justification of, of Christ that any of us can, can escape the justice that is due for all of us. Um, uh, I'm not going to compare any of you to, to a, uh, a Xi Jinping or a Vladimir Putin or anything like that. Um, but... I think we still all, to some extent, are stained. We're, we're all fall short of the glory of God. Um, when it's all said and done, though, there is going to be justice. And it sounds crazy. But, but name a person that, that you see as maybe the epitome of human um, power and authority. Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, Donald Trump, Angela Merkel... Um, Christine Lagarde, Jerome Powell, Jamie Dimon, Warren Buffett, uh, go on and on down the list. These global leaders, these corporate leaders, central bank leaders, um, you know, whatever. Yeah, you can say the 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 Rockefellers, the the uh, what's the name of the family that's that's escaping me at this point in time. Um, the big, you know, the big uh, European banking family that that's the, the, maybe the most famous of them. All of those individuals one day will kneel to God. 
right? Um, one day, I mean, that's a, that's really the the crux of of Revelation, the, the final book of the Bible. That you know, the the first time Jesus came, he came um, in in well, I mean, Palm Sunday, came into Jerusalem riding on the back of a of, of a donkey, right? Um, certainly maybe not what some expected, certainly maybe not what a lot of Jews expected in terms of the return of Christ. He didn't come leading a massive army. He didn't come with sword in hand, uh, literal sword at least. Um, no, he came on the back of a donkey and he gave himself up to, to die. I mean, maybe anticlimactic for a lot of individuals that lived in that time period. However, you know, we know revolution or revolution revelation that when you know Christ returns, um, it's going to look vastly different, and every knee will bow at that point in time. I mean, imagine this picture here. I mean, the most powerful, the most prideful, authoritarian individuals in the world that believe that now they can control the will of their millions or even billions of citizens. They can control the markets. They have the power to print or destroy billions and billions of dollars to make or break the lives of millions of citizens. Imagine that type of power. That's something none of us will ever um, experience, ever be able to comprehend. They'll bow, as will you and I. And, and for me, that is both terrifying and, and comforting. Comforting in the fact that well, I know justice will be done. Terrifying in the fact that, gosh, there's a lot of people that um, will not be justified in front of God. You see where I'm going with this, including maybe some of you guys. And I know, I know, maybe a lot of you guys tuned me out seven minutes ago. Um, change your podcast, turn on the volume. You don't want to listen to this, but but I think it's important, and I think. It's the only way that many of us can, you know, there's a search for justice in this world. There's a search for answers. There's a search for a resolution to this. And, and I think the tough answer is that, but, but the, the one that's ultimately true, is that you're not going to find that in this world by the bounds of this world. You're not going to find justice. You know, if you think Jamie Dimon or Bill Gates or... or um, Christine Lagarde or Jerome Powell or Xi Jinping is, you know, the worst human being in the world. They, did, they deserve a penalty worse than death. You're not going to find that justice likely in this world. Because how can you? How can you find something worse than death? I mean, you can say, well, we'll torture them. We'll throw them in jail for the rest of their lives. But does that equal what they've done? What you feel that they've you know, the, the wrongs, the, the sins they've committed, right? No, probably not. Hence the concept of, of hell, right? Uh, sort of an ultimate justice. But the great thing is, is that it, it doesn't have to be that way for any of us, for most of us, for some of us at least. We can be justified, right? We can escape that justice. I mean, it's, it, it's tough because on one hand, people are going to want a justice for the world, but then once I say that, that that means hell for a lot of people and a lot of people that aren't central bankers and presidents and CEOs and whatever, they kind of recoil at that. Well, you know, justice for, for the Chinese communists, but certainly not myself or my friends or my parents or anything that, that may not be um, believers in Christ, but, but certainly are not communists. They're not, um, they're not that low, right? That's what, you know, some people would say, I think, you know, 
we're all humans when it's all said and done. And we're all, I think, guilty of many of the same charges. Yeah, I'm not going to compare you guys to Adolf Hitler. Um, but we are no less deserving of God's grace than Adolf Hitler. I have no problem in saying that. Um, and yet, it's not really based on what we deserve or what we earn. It's a, it's a free gift. This justification by Christ's blood. Um, and I'd invite you all to consider running. I know there's a lot of people. But again, it, it goes back to this idea of justice. If you want justice in the world, I'm not saying that that's why you should, you should put your faith in God. That's maybe not the best reason for it. Right, um, the best reason would be to realize that hey, God exists. God of the Bible is the God of of truth, the the one true God, and that because of that, I want to put my faith in Him. I want to to um, know Him. I want to investigate this. If nothing else, investigate this more. And I know that there's plenty of you know ardent agnostics and atheists in, in the comment section. It's fine, whatever. I won't block you, uh, for the most part. Um, but I think there's a lot of people that feel the sense that things in the world are not right. And I'm telling you that there's an answer to all this. This idea of justice is, is God is a just God. Fortunately, he's also a merciful God. right? But this idea of justice and, and how do these debts get balanced out, it's, it's all summed up. Right? We already know how this ends. And that can provide, I think, a lot of peace to people, but also purpose. You know, what do we as individuals do? What can we as individuals do? Well, I can tell you one thing that there's no law, there's no revolution, there's no notion of burning burning it the F down or whatever that can change the heart of man. There's not. Man inherently our default setting, I think, is what you'd call depravity in the sense that uh, we're, we're not capable of good. We're, we're capable of sin. We're capable of acting in our own self-interest. And that's our default apart from saving grace of God. Right? So there's no law that can change our hearts. There's no way that um, somehow we can be made anew. And so I think we need to get that notion out of our head. I'm not saying that there's not ever a place for revolts or for law changes or anything like that. But if you, as an individual, want to have the most impact on the world, consider the words that I'm saying here. And if you are a Christian already, consider the words I'm saying here. That, that the, maybe the best impact you can have is, A, is my life in alignment with the Word of God? B, how do I bring others to Christ? I think that's, that's it. Whether that's your family, your children, your spouse, etc. Uh, can I lead my family in the way that's appropriate? Um, and beyond that, how do I bring others to Christ? How do I show them that this is not just the answer to the world's problems, but necessary for them for their lives. Not not from a basis of, of just total abject fear and say that that's the be-all, end-all. That, that I'm going to put my faith in God purely because I'm fearful of God and his wrath. That's part of, I'm sure, part of it. When you realize, hey, God exists and, and this is serious. I mean, yeah. You know, going back to, to words I've heard said before, um, 
the fear of God, the fear of death is a very powerful force. You know, how many atheists were there on D-Day storming the beaches of Normandy? Maybe not too many, right? Uh, how many atheists are there during an earthquake, a major earthquake? How many atheists? I mean, we can go on and on about this. Um, but but it's more than just a fear, right? It's more than just a fear of God. There's so much more to it than that. Um, and, and I can say personally from my experience, you want to know my a bit of my testimony? It's that I, I believe, for me personally, I'm not going to find ultimate satisfaction in anything but God. I can find some measure of that. And I think the things he's given me, my family, my wife, um, things I enjoy in life, etc. Right? Some measure of that satisfaction. But ultimately, it's not going to come from anything short of God. And short of God, none of those things will ultimately give me any satisfaction. I'm only going to get a measure of that satisfaction when God's part of the equation. Right? And I can say that in terms of, of what a lot of people, Americans and otherwise, are looking for. They may not realize it or not. But a lot of what we're looking for is, yeah, truth, a lot of answers. But also we're looking for things like peace. Peace for today, peace for tomorrow. And, and that's, you know, that's broad. A lot of you may be out of work. A lot of you may be um, going back to this topic about, you know, justice in the world. It can lead to a lot of lack of peace in, in individuals' hearts when they see what's going on. They disagree with it. It's infuriating. It leads to lack of peace. I feel that too sometimes, an, an anger. Hopefully a righteous anger, maybe not. But you can find that. And, and our savior, right? Joy. A lot of people are lacking joy. You know, happiness. What is what is happiness? You know, and, and hey, we know in American consumerism, happiness should be achieved by a larger TV, a newer car, a nicer smartphone, some streaming apps, maybe for some of us, new guns, you know, new fishing gear, new hunting gear, new outdoors gear, new sports gear, a sports game, going to a sports game, um, some combination of those things, we should achieve some level, some measure of happiness, some measure of joy. And yet I'm here to tell you that, hey, guess what? In, in Christ, I can say to me personally that I found the epitome of joy. And I find that actually a lot of those other things in life don't bring me a whole lot of joy anymore. Sometimes maybe a measure of that. But no, I mean, ultimately it's found in God. And, and, and the nice thing is, is that it's found in God regardless of my circumstances, regardless of rough seas or not. And I think that's really apart from this notion of happiness that we see in America or in the world today, that we only can be happy when times are good. Well, again, I think a lot of us are looking for that right now, for peace, for joy, for hope. Um, I think that that's a big part of this too. I know I'm going 47 minutes here, but hopefully I'll be wrapped up by 50. Um, hope, I think, is a big part of it as well. Hope for the future. And again, going back to people in their economic picture, people in their, their hope for their relationships, for their marriage, for their children, for this world. Um, it's, it can look very bleak sometimes. And, and hey, I'm here to tell you that there's bigger things to life than your job or what college your kid goes to or who's president or what the market looks like or what your retirement looks like. Or any of that. Right? The, the great thing about God is that you're putting your faith in him. You're, you're born anew. You have a new life. And you're 
motivations, your interests, your your value system is totally the opposite of what it was beforehand. And you can find hope in that. Finally, love. I mean, it sounds so cheesy. And and look, I see it all the time. You see it all the time in the media that what this world needs in this time of crisis is love. I think love is what many of us may or may not be looking for without knowing it. And and I would agree with that notion that what this world needs is love. And yet what this world calls love is, is so often maybe not love. Maybe not selfless love. And, and, and what is the epitome of selfless love, selfless love? I mean, what is selfish love? Right? Um, love, I think, first of all, is, is acts. It's not just a feeling. But, but selfish love, what some people would call love, but maybe just selfish love, is doing something, giving something out of one's own interests. Right? I'm going to do this, but it's kind of still in my best interest. It makes me feel good. Um, I get something out of it, etc. It's not really love. And I think the epitome of love is selfless love. And what, you know, love is there greater than sacrifice, right? And again, this gets back to a story many of you guys probably have heard, maybe not, but the, the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. I mean, that is huge. That is the epitome of selfless love. Somebody that does not, of all of us, the one person that does not deserve that fate is the one person that puts himself through that, willingly. Again, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, willingly going with the guards, willingly being beaten, a crown of thorns put on his head, carries his own cross to his own death. And for what? For love of us. For love of the billions of people past, prior to that, and in the future and present. Billions of people that have walked the earth. That was a love, a selfless love that he showed for you, he showed for me, he showed for Donald Trump and Jamie Dimon and Xi Jinping and you name it. it that's what he showed it for. Right? I mean, how, how can you say anything's greater than that? I want that. I want to know how can I become more like that? If you, you want to find, you want to make a difference in the world. Love like that. But I can tell you something that you can't love like that apart from faith in Jesus. You can't just say, I like the idea of that. I'm going to try and practice that on my own. You're going to fall flat on your face. Right? Um, he, he's the, he's the, Peace, the joy, the hope, the love that we need for this world, that you need for your own individual life, your own individual soul. Period. End of story. Right? Um, he's the justice. He's the mercy we need for this world. Right? Uh, look, I'm not making this a, a, a whole um, presentation on the, 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 the uh, evidence of the Bible or anything like that. I'm not going to go through, you know, the evidence of its truth, of its veracity or anything like that. That's not the purpose of what I'm saying here. I'm, I'm, I'm presenting you, I think a very important piece of truth here. And, and I hope that you guys will take it to heart. I do. Um, I know that my audience is not huge. It's in the hundreds to thousands, depending on the day. Um, but it doesn't matter to me. I mean, I, I, I can say that I don't love every one of you the way that Christ does, but I can say that there's some measure of that. 
Um, and I want every one of you to, to find what I have found, right? It's like I'm, I went in the woods one day and I started digging a hole and I found a treasure. Of course, that puts too much, I think, emphasis on me that somehow I found it. Maybe I guess I could say I went through the woods and, and the treasure was presented to me by God. In fact, maybe he even called me into the woods in the first place. I can say definitively that, yeah, he did. I found this treasure. Um, but, but I opened up the box and there's something greater than silver and gold in it. And I grabbed my share and guess what? It's not empty. It doesn't run out, right? God's you know, love, it, it doesn't run out. In fact, you know, the Bible would describe it, his grace is, uh, is, is something that, that runs over. You know, it's like a fountain that just runs over, you know, it's fountains flow into themselves. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the water gets sucked up and shot back out again and whatever, conserve water and whatnot. Well, what happens when the flow in comes from the city's main water system and the holes that are supposed to flow back into the fountain itself are plugged? What happens is it just flows over. And that's, I mean, ultimately what God's love, what his grace is. There's not a limit to this treasure I found, and I want to share it with you guys. I want desperately for you to to look into this for yourself, as cheesy as that sounds, or as maybe uh, mundane as that sounds. But as always, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. There's a lot to talk about economically and financially, and I'll continue to do so. Um, but the answer to our problems is maybe not to burn at the F down, maybe not to uh, revolt. Maybe. I mean, that's this is going to maybe fix something. Maybe not. I don't know. I'm certainly not happy with the current system, but I know where my hope is found. And I know that in the meantime, I can have peace. I can have joy and that I am loved. And therefore, once I fully understand that, I can love and I can be the change, you know, to quote, how can be the change I want to see in the world? I can do that. But, but it's only through the, the strength, the, the saving grace of God. This isn't something I could ever do on my own. Um, I don't think we're capable of that. So as always, though, I'd like to thank every one of you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today's podcast. And God bless.